Right. Uh, <clears throat> probably for the <clears throat> for, for the first easily the first twenty years of the life of this church, when when it came to Bible teaching, I had never taught or even alluded to a theological system. Um, you know, we, we 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 had a blessed twenty years. Um, words like Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, Amillennialism, Reformed theology, terms like that. I mean, I just never used them because I never thought in that way. I never subscribed to any of them. Therefore, I didn't teach them. <clears throat> but obviously, as one, you know, sort of mixes more widely, and it's always good to mix widely. And as you, you know, listen to more and more teaching from other sources, which is always a good thing to do, eventually it's inevitable that you're going to hit up against these systems, whichever ones they may happen to be. Now, obviously, the reason that I personally have never subscribed to any and, uh, you know, sort of like have not really been that way inclined is because <clears throat> my own opinion is that if you embrace a theological system, then the great danger is that you end up reading the Bible in the light of your theological system, rather than allowing the Bible to be judging your theological system. And of course, if somebody says, oh, I have a theological system, but I'm very careful to let the Bible judge my theological system, then my question is, so why bother to have a theological system? Can you see the point? Um, you don't need a theological system if your clear intent is to simply read the Bible for what it says. Now, the problem is that people who subscribe to theological systems would find what I've just said immensely arrogant. Because their answer is, well, look, the great minds that develop these theological systems and you're saying that you can just come to the Bible on your own. Isn't that rather arrogant? But the problem is, for all those great minds out there, they're all subscribing to theological systems that contradict each other. Can you see the point? So one person subscribes to a particular theological system, system A, say. Someone else subscribes to system B. They conflict with each other at numerous points. So therefore, what have you got to do to find out which one is right or wrong? You've got to go to the Bible for yourself. So therefore, this is why I always argue, well, look, you know, forget the theological systems. By all means, delve into them by way of them being a teaching aid and stuff like that. No problem there. But whatever you do, make sure that you never embrace a theological system per se, but you just all the time stick to just going after letting the Bible speak for itself. Now, what what we're going to do tonight, <coughs> you know, and it's come out of, you know, various conversations that I hear people having and that we've had, and in fact, one that we had here a couple of weeks ago. And it's, it, it's because... Uh, I'm going to show you an example of something that a very, you know, sort of like, a, you know, a, a very important and influential theological system says is true. 
And I'm going to show you that when we just look at what the Bible says and let the Bible speak for itself, it obviously isn't true. And I've just picked this example because it's something that has been coming up amongst us for a while. And mm. <clears throat> it's, it's simply this. According to a very great many Christians, if you have someone who says that they have received Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, that they have trusted him for salvation, that they've been born again, that if they get into serious sin or are fallen away, that this means that quite irrespective of what they may claim, by definition, they cannot be Christians. Okay. So... The question that I want to ask, and, and, and I, I think you know, we're going to do more reading from the Bible than me talking, all right, tonight. But we've got, we're going to answer this question: Can genuine believers live in serious sin, or even fall away? Now, obviously, I'm not saying it's a good. If we conclude they can, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not doing this to try and persuade anyone to get into serious sin or to fall away. But it is a very important question. So the point is, we're going to simply go to Scripture and we're going to let the Bible speak for itself and see if it can answer the question: Can genuine believers get into serious? ongoing unrepentant serious sin or even fall away or if someone is in that condition does it mean that well they just weren't believers they were kidding themselves they were deceived to ever think they were converted in the first place so let's let if you go to 1 corinthians uh, chapter 1 <coughs> and we're basically just gonna you know go go through the bible pretty much you know sort of chronologically and systematically and uh, just read things that the word of God says <coughs> is it possible for someone to get me a glass of water <laughs> um, <clears throat> ok 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and just going to read verse 1 to 9 and probably here and there we're going to do a lot of reading tonight so um, here and there I'll get other people to read so 1 Corinthians 1, we'll start off with verse 1 to 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Thanks, David. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Now, the reason I've read that is because it makes it 
absolutely clear that Paul is writing to people that he considers to be believers. So these people that he's writing to, the Church of God in Corinth, and this is, it's addressed to the people in that church, who are part of that church. And he says that they're sanctified. He said they're called to be holy. Um, he said they do not lack any spiritual gift. Um, and so what, what is absolutely clear is that Paul is writing to people who he is quite happy are believers. Uh, that's absolutely clear from the opening of the letter. This letter is not addressed to a church where he's saying some of you are believers and some aren't. He's writing to people that he's absolutely clear in his own mind are Christians. Now, let's go to chapter 5. Now, Paul says it is actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Now, just to give you the context here. Remember, Paul is writing to believers who live in a city that was legendary for its immorality. The Greek culture was amazingly immoral at its core. Um, Greek culture of the day makes present day England look rather Victorian by comparison. Um, in a normal well-to-do Greek household among the rich, um, the, the understanding was that you would have a wife in order to give you children, but your sexual pleasure was gleaned elsewhere. And indeed, amongst the rich, they would employ women whose job it was to teach, and I think this started when they, as soon as their boys reached puberty, they would employ women whose job was to teach their young boys sexual pleasure. So the point is it was a culture that saw marriage as being for procreation, therefore one wife and that's stability, but sexual pleasure was found elsewhere. And that was at the heart of Greek society. However, the Greek culture considered Corinth to be so immoral, even by their own standards, that at the time, the Greeks had a phrase to Corinthianize, and it meant to lead someone into debauchery. And the reason was that in Corinth there was the Temple of Diana. Now we're going to be back to this later. And at the Temple of Diana, basically <laughs> the, the worship services there, they had love feasts. Most of the religions of the day did. Christians were not any different to anyone else in that respect. But... The, the, the love feasts were drunken orgies mm. and the priestesses were prostitutes. So the point is that, that, that you know, sort of like the, the Corinthian culture was just as debauched as you could get. 
And what Paul's saying here is, look, you've got someone in the church and they're actually committing a sin that even the Corinthian Greeks wouldn't approve of. So the point is, he's hijacked his dad's stepmom. He's having, sorry, he's hijacked his dad's wife, who is his stepmom. He's having an affair with his own stepmom. And what Paul is saying, look, this is so out of order, even by his own standards, he should be out, okay? So back to verse 3, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now what's interesting here, throughout the New Testament, we've done this before, that when you get this language of handing someone over to Satan, it's, it's one of the, the phrases that the Apostle uses to speak of excommunication. So when you put someone out of fellowship. And remember, when Jesus introduced this concept in his own teaching, if your brother sins against you and eventually you take it to your church, remember, the whole point is, it's if your brother sins against you. At no point is there any suggestion that this demonstrates they're not believers. And indeed, if you had an unbeliever in the church, you may get to the point where you'd ask them to leave, but you're not excommunicating them because you're not in fellowship with them in the first place. You see the point? So basically what we've got here is this guy is going to be put out of the church. But now go to verse 9. Because I'm wanting you to get a picture of the kind of thing that Paul is combating in the lives of these people who we've already seen from chapter 1, he is totally convinced of as being genuine believers. And in verse 9 he says, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. Now look at the contrast. Brother as opposed to the people of this world. See what I mean? Paul's quite clear. He's dealing here with Christians. And he's dealing with Christians who, um, he says, in, but now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy. Now it's interesting, greedy, we don't get too het up about that, do mm. we? We don't consider that a serious sin. But sexually immoral, an idolater, a, sorry, um, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So can you see the point here? Paul is saying that the church has got to be ready at any point to deal with brothers and sisters. Remember, Jesus is teaching, if your brother sins against you, 
He's not saying, he doesn't say, well, if someone sins so seriously they ought to be put out of the church, that just proves they're not your brother. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. All right. Mm. So therefore, Paul is perfectly aware of that genuine Christians can behave in this way. Now, move on into chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 12 down to 20. Now, I, I take you back to what I said about the temple of Diana, or Aphrodite, the goddess of love, all right, that it was drunken orgies at the temple, and the priestesses were actually prostitutes, all right. So, chapter 6, verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now, can you see the point here? Some of the Corinthians, now obviously these would have been the converted Corinthian Greeks. It wouldn't have been the Jewish contingent. They'd have known better than that. But some of the Greek converts in the church, they're sneaking off to the temple love feasts. And later on in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the, temp, you know, the, the table of demons, that's what he's comparing. How can you go to the love feast there and then come to the love feast at the church? And here he's saying, look, you guys, you should not be going to prostitutes. Now, we might be absolutely amazed. I mean, Paul, he's almost cavalier about this, isn't he? He says, no, don't go to prostitutes. I mean, you know, for us, we'd be... What? You're going to prostitute? Paul, you know, he's not approving of it. He's disapproving of it. But it's not the kind of, he's not saying, oh, goodness, this means you're not believers. Quite the contrary. As he writes to these Corinthians, some of whom are going to the prostitutes at the Temple of Diana, what is his reason? What's his argument for persuading them to stop? And he says it's because you're one with Jesus. He doesn't say this proves you're not a believer, get saved. He's arguing with them. He's persuading them not to go to prostitutes because they are believers. And he's saying how you're one with Jesus, your body belongs to the Lord. How on earth can you therefore be going to prostitutes and becoming one flesh? And he says, do you not know that he who, who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? I know that, you know, sort of like most Christians, that's their favourite verse when it comes to smoking, doesn't it? But interestingly mm -hmm. enough... Paul is specifying the only sin against your body is immorality. All right. And he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit 
who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Can you see what Paul's argument is here? He's saying, you belong to Jesus. Stop going to prostitutes. Now, all I'm doing here is I'm simply saying, well, it seems to me that this is pretty clear what the Bible says. So what are you going to do with a theological system that by definition has to say that these people are not genuine believers? And this is the problem with theological systems. Now, every theological system is right about lots and lots of things. That's great. Not a problem. But the trouble with theological systems is it's when there are components of that system that have to assert certain things that are at variance with the Bible and then you end up twisting the Bible. You see what I mean? So therefore, I think, again, we're seeing here pretty clearly. Can Christians, genuine Christians, be habitually going to prostitutes and not repenting and what's interesting is that shortly we'll get to the end of 2 Corinthians which is ages later they're still doing it now lots of Christians will say oh no they're not believers look at the fruit they're not believers but can you not see Paul is admonishing them precisely on the basis that they are Christians go to chapter 10 chapter 10 um, and if someone could just read from chapter 14 to 22 and again this is the reference to the temple the, 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 the idolatrous love feast down at the temple of Diana 1 Corinthians 10 14 to 22 therefore my dear friends flee from idolatry I speak to sensible people judge for yourself what I say it is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ and is, and is not the bread that we break participation in the body of Christ because there is one loaf we who are many are one in body for we all partake of the one loaf consider the people of Israel do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? I do not mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participating with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a, a part in the body, in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are, you, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Right, thanks. Yeah, so what Paul is saying here, look, those of you going to these pagan love feasts, I mean, they are a total demonic counterfeit to the genuine love feast of the Lord's Supper. And he says, look, you are fellowshipping with demons. When it says participants, that's only that's fellowship. He says, look, you are fellowshipping with demons. You cannot fellowship with demons and then come along to the church and eat the Lord's Supper. He said, you just can't do that. Now, again, there are theological systems that say that 
no way could a genuine believer be fellowshipping with demons. If the Holy Spirit is inside of you, there's no way you could be fellowshipping with demons. Therefore, these people are not genuine believers. But what we're seeing here is Paul's whole appeal to them is on the basis that they are believers who are not living consistently with their profession of faith. He's not calling their profession of faith into question, quite the contrary. He's appealing to them on the basis of their profession of faith. So he's saying, because you know Jesus, how on earth can you keep doing that? You see, he's not in any way at all calling into question whether they are believers or not. Um, and then in, in, in chapter 11 and verse 21, we just get his comment again when, when some of these guys were at the Lord's table. Now, when they went down to the, the pagan orgies, they were obviously getting drunk there, but some of them were actually getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They, they were actually getting drunk on the Sundays. So again, you know, there are some people who say, oh, well, no, that just means they're not a believer. I cannot tell you how many times through the years I've heard Christians when confronted with someone who claims to be a Christian, but is in what you might call one of the grosser sins, as it were, the number of times I've heard it said, well, they're not a believer then. It's, a, you know, it's just a false profession of faith. If they were a believer... They wouldn't be doing that. So now go to 2 Corinthians. And, and all, all, all I'm asking tonight is that you're just trying to let the Bible speak for itself. You see what I mean? Um, you know, the clear, plain meaning of Scripture. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So obviously, same church, uh, sometime later. Sometime later. Good few months, could be a year or two even, not, not quite sure. 2 Corinthians 2, and we'll read verse 5 to 11. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now here, Paul is writing to them and, and, and he's referring to someone who's been put out of the church, has clearly repented and therefore been welcomed in. And Paul's burden is to make sure, well, as indeed the Corinthians are doing, to you know really build this person up now because they're repentant and so to make sure that the fact that they've been put out of the church doesn't now become a matter of great discouragement for them. Now we cannot say for sure whether this is the same guy who Paul said put out of the church in one Corinthians. <coughs> we cannot be sure of that. It might be him but it might be someone else. But the point is 
whoever it is, it's someone who was sinning in the kind of way that Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians. Now, is Paul writing to them and saying, ah, right, he's repented, he's become a Christian now? No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying, confirm your love for him. Confirm him in the faith. You know, there's nothing here of Paul saying, ah, now he's a genuine believer. This whole process is based on the premise that whoever this guy was, whether it was the guy in 1 Corinthians or whatever, whoever it was, he's in serious sin, now he's repented, there is no question whatsoever that he was a genuine believer. You see what I mean? Now go to chapter 12. Because what of these other naughty boys in the Corinthian church? <clears throat> now, months later, so they've been going to prostitutes for a very, very long time. Paul had appealed to them. Others in the church would have done. They weren't repenting. They were still doing it. I'm going to show you months later, at the end of 2 Corinthians, they're still doing it. Now, again, does this mean they're not Christians or what? Okay, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, start reading at verse 19. Um, he said, and that was start of verse 20. I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. See the point? These people going to prostitutes still haven't repented. Now, what Paul is saying, I'll tell you, the next time I get there, they're going to be in for the high jump. But, is there anything here by way of saying, well, obviously they're not believers? And the answer is no. Paul's appeal with all these people is, because you are believers, it is a scandal that you are behaving in this particular way. So, what we've basically got so far is we've been dealing with what you might call the grosser sins. Now, I don't, I don't know whether there are grosser sins or not. All sin is abhorrent to God. But there's no doubt there are sins which are outwardly all the more obvious. When you uh, drunkenness, immorality, um, you know, sort of the, this kind of stuff. And, you know, idolatry. <coughs> and what we're seeing is that that's exactly the sort of stuff that Paul was dealing with in the Corinthian church. And when you get these theological systems, these are the people that these systems most readily say are not believers. They say you cannot live like that. A genuine believer could not live like that. If someone is living like that, then even though they say they're born again, even though they say that, you know, that they're Christian, they're not. It's a false profession of faith. They are not born again. 
they are purely counterfeit believers. And all, all I'm trying to show you is, that's not how Paul thought. And if Paul could not have bought into a theological system that says that, then, that, you know, I, I would say, then we should not be buying into anything. Can you see what I mean? If we just let the Bible speak for itself, then I think it's clear that when you get people who claim to be Christians and claim to have been born again, that just because they're in messes like this, and we're going to go on in a minute to, to move on to people who actually completely fall away, it doesn't mean that their profession of faith was not genuine. Just showing you genuine believers can get into this kind of a mess. Right, now go to Galatians. A somewhat different problem here. Galatians chapter 3. Because what's, what's happening here is that Paul is addressing primarily Jewish believers who have gone back into Judaism. So they've gone back under the law and, and sacrifices and circumcision and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so, so they've gone back into a system that says salvation is by works, not only. But faith in Jesus isn't enough. You've got to have all this other stuff as well. And a, a, an equivalent to this today would be something like the Catholic Church. And indeed, there are people, there have been, you know, through the years, many quite high profile people um, who were what you would call Protestant, evangelical, Bible believing Christians, who later in their life have converted to the Catholic faith. And they've gone over to the Catholic Church and embrace the whole teachings of the Catholic Church. Now, again, the theological systems such as I'm speaking of, in a situation like that, would say that proves that they weren't genuine believers. All right. So let's let's have a look at Galatians. All right. Let's read uh, chapter three, verse one to five. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Now, here's what Paul says there. He's working on the assumption they receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, in Corinthians, Paul says, No one says Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. If someone professes that Jesus is Lord, that they've become a Christian, only the Holy Spirit can do that. So the point is, Paul is not questioning, he's not saying you're not even believers or you wouldn't get deceived by this. He's saying, remember, you received the Holy Spirit by faith. Why are you going to works now? So when you get people who have been Orthodox Christians who say convert to the Catholic Church, or some of the sectarian movements convert to JWs or Unitarianism or whatever, then Paul's argument is, look, hang on a sec, when you believed in Jesus, you received the Spirit just by believing. Again, he's not working on this idea that the fact that they're doing this proves they weren't genuinely converted. He goes on, he says, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, 
See, he accepts they're genuine born-again believers. <clears throat> Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? So, c can you see there, Paul's argument is that they are deceived Christians. There's not the slightest hint that he believed that this was evidence that their conversion was false. Um, go to chapter 5 still in Galatians. <coughs> um, and would, would someone just read Galatians 5 and just starting off uh, verse 1 to 15 uh, we're going to read the whole chapter but if someone could just read 1 to 15 for the moment thanks it is for freedom that Christ has set us free stand firm then do not let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of slavery <coughs> mark my words I Paul tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised Christ will be of no value to you, to you at all Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Could you just read that last sentence one more time? You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Lovely, thanks. Okay, keep going. But by faith we eagerly await through the spirit and righteousness for which we hope for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love you were running a good race who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view the one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that, in that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbour as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Lovely, thanks. Now, do you notice that verse I got Andy to read out twice? You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. I mean, how strong can you get but this is something that could only be true of a genuine believer this is, these are not people who are now proving that their salvation was was false these are not people who are now demonstrating that they were were, were never genuinely born again these are born again believers falling away from the faith in effect going into a, a different religion because the moment that Jesus came, the moment that the law was gone, 
any question of being under the law is exactly the same as going into the Roman Catholic Church where now your salvation depends not on believing in Jesus but your salvation depends on your ongoing commitment to the Catholic Church the ministration of priests and taking the Mass and if you don't do any of those things you won't be saved now that's the equivalent here and again what is Paul's attitude? Is he concluding that they weren't genuine believers or they couldn't do this? Well, look, verse 7, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? So far from saying, hey, this proves you weren't genuine believers in the first place, Paul says, hey, you were doing so well. Come on, do well again. Get back to where you used to be. Keep depending on Jesus alone drop all this rubbish so the point is we're seeing quite clearly yes a Christian can be alienated from Christ they can fall away from grace in the sense that they're completely out of fellowship with Jesus they've completely fallen away from grace because they're not depending on grace anymore they're depending on works and Paul's response to it hey you were doing so well don't go and ruin it now by being deceived by all this nonsense and then in verse 13 he says look you were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature now there's a principle here that we need to really understand and it's quite simply this why would the new testament which is written to believers so and at least the letters clearly <coughs> written to believers why would the new testament give such grave warnings to believers about things that a believer can't do. You see the point? If a true believer can't fall away, why would the New Testament warn us against falling away? If a genuine believer cannot get entangled in serious ongoing sin, even of the grosser kind, if a Christian can't do that, why does the New Testament warn us against doing it? Can you see the point? It's ridiculous that God would warn us against things that it's not possible for us to do. And then in verse 15, he says, If you keep biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. It's a serious warning. If Christians couldn't bite and devour and destroy each other, you know, and in a study a few weeks ago we saw that Christians actually murdering each other why would the Bible warn against doing that if it's not possible for a Christian to actually doing it are you getting the point and then in chapter 6 and verse 7 Paul says do not be deceived God cannot be mocked a man reaps what he sows the one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. And you see what Paul's saying there? He's saying, look, if you sow to the flesh, if you go with sin, then you will experience the destruction of that rather than living in your eternal life now you're going to spend your life out of fellowship with God but the whole point is he's saying this to believers 
Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Right. Paul says, I tell you this and insist on it. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him according with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to one another. Now, can you see the point here? He's saying, look, do not live any more like the Gentiles do. So what's he saying? Stop living like you used to live before you got converted. And then among the examples is precisely sensuality, every kind of impurity and continual lust. He precisely sets out sexual sins. And what he's saying to them, you shouldn't be living like that anymore. But can you see his appeal to them is that they should be putting all that off and living in the new nature. He's not challenging them as to whether their profession of faith is genuine or not. He's saying because your profession of faith is genuine, it is an outrage that you're behaving like this. And he goes on, he says, look, you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Again, why would the Bible warn us against things we can't do? He says, look, stop lying to each other. And wouldn't it be so easy to say that someone who is a habitual liar, oh, well, that proves that they're not Christian then. They say they're a Christian, but you know, they're not, they can't. Well, no, it might be they're a Christian who is not repenting of telling lies. But it doesn't of itself call into question whether or not they're a genuine believer. So again, can you see Paul's outlook here? Again, if we go with some of these systems that people teach, and they would say that if you've got someone who claims to be a Christian and they're living in all kinds of serious sin and they're not repenting or maybe they're repenting and then they do it again and they repent and do it again, repent and do it again. They say that that proves that they're not genuine believers, that they're false believers. Well, again, I'm, I'm just saying here that is this not an example of a theological system? having to ignore what the Bible clearly says about something simply because it doesn't fit in with the theological system. Um, go to 1 Timothy. 
1 Timothy now. Um, chapter 1. And let's read verse 18 to 20. Right, I'm going to read a series of verses from here. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, can you see the handed over to Satan? It's always a picture of people that Paul has put out of fellowship. Now, can you see, he speaks here, all right, of people who they stop holding on to faith and they stop holding on to a good conscience. So he's talking about people, they're not going by their conscience. Bit by bit, they've let it slip. They've stopped being honest about sin here and there. Can you see what I mean? And when we stop doing that, our consciences, they harden. They don't work anymore. And that's what's happened with these guys. And then he says, look, and these are included. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Now, is, is Paul saying here that a believer can shipwreck their faith? I completely fall away. Well, yes, that's exactly what he's saying. You can't shipwreck what you haven't got. You see the whole point? When you get these Christians who have completely fallen away, all right, they've gone and got into all kinds of messes. Now, again, I'm talking about people who have clearly been converted and followed the Lord. And then this is what becomes of them eventually, further down the line. These are the people I'm talking about. All right. You can't shipwreck what you haven't got. And to say that someone who shipwrecked their faith, it proves they didn't have faith, is a nonsense. You might as well look down at a shipwreck from the cliffs and say, oh, look, there's a shipwreck. That wasn't a ship then, was it? This is the point. You can't shipwreck what you haven't got. And here again, why why would the Bible warn believers about against something they can't do? If the truth is that a genuine believer can never fall away, well, so why do genuine believers need this verse? You see the point. If it can never happen, why put it in the Bible? And you say, well, it's there for the false Christians. Yeah, but hang on. You show me which letter Paul wrote to false Christians. He didn't. Can you see how crazy it is? But again, this is the danger when you get these theological systems. Let's keep going. Go over to chapter 4. Still in 1 Timothy. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith. Now, when, when Paul talks about abandoning the faith, what's he talking about? He's talking about discipleship. Now, you can't abandon something you haven't got. I could abandon Belinda, but how can I abandon a woman I've never married? 
see the point you can't abandon your faith or abandon the faith unless you were in the faith you see the point this can only apply to believers and it's saying in the last times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons I say there are theological systems they say can't happen if someone has abandoned the faith that proves they were not a genuine believer but if they were not a genuine believer how can it therefore be said they were in the faith it's crazy Paul here is clearly talking about believers and uh, he, he, he goes on uh, verse 11 he says command and teach these things don't let anyone look down on you because you're young but set an example to the believers in speech life love faith and purity until I come devote yourself uh, to the public reading of scripture to preaching and to teaching do not neglect your gift which was given you through the prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you be diligent in these matters give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress watch your life and doctrine closely persevere in them because if you do you will save both yourself and your hearers he's not talking about <coughs> saving yourself in the sense of going to heaven he's saying <coughs> that if you stick closely to scripture if you stick closely to teaching scripture and if you make sure that you're living according to it then you will be delivered you and yourself from falling into these deceptions that will cause you to abandon the faith you see what Paul's saying so again a tremendously strong warning here about abandoning the faith by getting into serious deception but the whole point Paul is warning Christians so any idea that oh well no but if this happens it just shows you weren't a genuine believer is nonsense Paul's writing here to Timothy an apostle on Paul's apostolic team <coughs> temporarily an acting elder in the Ephesian churches and Paul's writing to him and saying you watch yourself make sure it doesn't happen to you so why would he warn Timothy against something that could never happen to Timothy it will be a nonsense uh, chapter 6 um, he says if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching he is conceited and understands nothing he has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from the faith 
and pierce themselves with many griefs. So here we've got people that Paul says they've wandered from the faith, riches and the desire to be rich have taken them over. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of sin. So these people, they're not really living the Christian life now because of their pursuit of money, riches, lifestyle and of course the whole sinful thing that goes with that. And Paul says, look, they've wandered from the faith. So he says, you be careful, don't want to be rich. If you want to be rich, you're in danger of this happening to you. Again, why would Paul warn believers against something that can't happen? Money and greed can equally be a means of falling away from the faith as much as demonic deceptions and sexual immorality and, and, and unrepentant sin. So are you getting the point here? Just a, a handful more scriptures. Uh, just go to, to, to Timothy now. 2 Timothy 2 and uh, um, verse 14 uh, he says keep reminding them of these things i.e. then the people in the churches that Timothy was temporarily leading until they got their own elders warn them before God against quarrelling about words it is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because of those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Again, people say, if you're getting more and more ungodly, that's got to prove you were a genuine believer. But here is Paul writing to genuine believers, make sure you get more godly, not more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and destroy the faith of some. These are kind of the earliest examples of full preterism, denying the future bodily return of Jesus. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And then go to chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So again we ask, why is Paul warning against falling away and turning away from the truth 
because you know you you you, you know you, you you there are things you want to hear there are things in the bible you don't want to hear so you kind of phase them out and you phase in deceptive stuff that is what you want to hear but isn't true but you wander away from the truth you end up shipwrecked you've fallen away as a believer why would paul warn us against that happening if it can't happen to genuine believers remember those who adhere to the theological system i've got in mind here they're not saying that christians don't sin i mean it's very rare to find someone who would say christians don't sin but what these guys say is they don't sin seriously in an ongoing way and they really honestly don't fall away you see what i mean that's what i'm addressing and oh boy it seems to me it's absolutely clear in the new testament there is every danger of genuine believers getting into serious sin and even falling away shipwrecking their faith all right uh titus just two more passages now titus chapter 1 we'll read verse 9 to 16 now the context here is the function of eldership relative to defending the church against error so it's talking about elders uh, you know the qualifications he must i an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it, ha it has been taught so he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it and i've said before that word refute it's not the greek word that means to refute as in merely correct if you refute something you show it to be false it's not that greek word it's a greek word that means to show something to be false in such a way that you convict the person who's doing it so it's, it's a greek word that means that that you don't just demonstrate it's wrong but you do so in such a way as those being refuted are convicted of sin so it's not just a merely intellectual argument it's you know a moral thing for there are many rebellious people mere talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision group and from elsewhere in scripture we know the circumcision party were genuine believers they went out from the jerusalem church they were in fellowship with the apostles in jerusalem so they were genuine believers and one of the great weaknesses of these theological systems that say that if you if you've got believers who behave like this or fall away they're not genuine believers then part of the problem is how do you know who's a genuine believer or not you know because you've got to wait till they get to the end of their life to see if they fall away or not you see the problem it's more than that how do you know you're a believer because until you get to the end of your life down here how do you know you're not going to fall away and this is one of the big problems uh, Paul in one place spoke about Demas now Demas was on Paul's apostolic team and Demas deserted him and went back to the world a clear reference to someone falling away now if that means Demas wasn't a genuine believer is it can it really be the case that Paul was taken in by him if Paul the apostle can't tell a true Christian from a false one what hope has anyone else got because you see how, how crazy this this whole thing is but anyway keep keep going on this they must be silenced because they're ruining whole households <clears throat> by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain 
Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gruttons. Because uh, Titus is on Crete here, so Cretans were about the inhabitants of Crete. <coughs> this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they may be sound in the faith. So, are these false teachers, are they Christians or not? They're Christians. How could you say to someone, you've got to be sound in the faith, if they're not a believer? You see the point? So, clearly, again, this is talking about genuine believers. Um, so, so that they will be sound in the faith and pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted, nothing and do not believe nothing is pure. In fact, both their, their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. I.e., they're saying they're following the Lord in the present tense, but the way they're living shows they're completely out of fellowship. Right. Doesn't prove they're not Christians, but they are out of fellowship. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for anything good. And that's an amazing thing to think that Paul could say that of believers who are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. But I've got to tell you, I know quite a few Christians through the years who are like that. It's sad. You know, these are people who would be excommunicable. And then the very last uh, one, James. Just uh, read some verses from James. <clears throat> and I'm going to read verse 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet. I think we spoke about this a few weeks ago. The Greek word here is the specific Greek word for murder. It's a separate Greek word for kill. This is the one for murder. You murder and covet, but you cannot have what you want. Remember, we talked about the fact, you know, I gave you the example in, um, you know, the reformers. They had Anabaptists murdered. They murdered them. It's terrible what, what, what happened. Um, you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's writing to Christians here. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And he's writing to believers who are so hardened in sin, they're even capable of murder. And without a second thought. And the writer is saying, hey, look, you've got to start repenting. But he's writing to them because they're Christians. Brothers, do not slander one another. Why would he say brothers? Because he knows he's writing to believers. 
he does not challenge the fact that they're believers. He accepts their believers and that's the basis of his appeal to them. Brothers do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. Um, so there you can see by definition he's talking here about brothers. So can you see then all, all, all I've you know kind of tried to you know sort of show is that this idea that you find you know fairly commonly and this this tends to be the Calvinist thing the reformed theology thing um, you know perseverance of the saints okay like Calvinism tulip t-u-l-i-p represents each one of the five points and the last point is perseverance of the saints that can you see that that any idea that if someone falls away or gets into serious sin that this proves they're not a genuine believer we're seeing from the bible that whereas that might fit really nicely in that particular theological system it certainly doesn't fit in very well with what the bible actually says so therefore what we're seeing is this it is clearly the case that genuine believers who are born again of the Holy Spirit, who are sons of God, children of God, justified and sanctified, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and then rebukes them for every sin under the sun, it can still be the case that we can get into serious sin or even fall away. And we've got to realise how deadly serious this is for us. Because the point is, the Bible doesn't warn us against anything that can't actually happen to us. And so therefore, we need to take these warnings very seriously. And I think that one of the dangers of you know, this idea of perseverance of the saints in regards to that theological system, one of the great dangers of it as a doctrine is it can lull people into a false sense of security being convinced you're a genuine believer because you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour and I will say yes you are but if you're convinced of that you're also now convinced that you can never get into serious error sin or fall away now if that's the case you're not going to be on your guard against it you see and Satan can get in it actually leaves you wide open to assaults of the devil that you don't believe he can carry off. Because if you don't believe you can fall away, if you don't believe that's a real danger, well, then I, I would say you are in all the greater danger of it happening to you precisely because you think it can't happen to you. So clearly, genuine believers can live in serious, unrepentant sin and rebellion. In which case, they'll probably need to be put out of the church. They can even completely fall away. Shipwreck their faith entirely. And it's absolutely clear from scripture that genuine believers do that. So to that extent, perseverance of the saints, we can kind of knock that one off. You know, because it's just, it's just not what the Bible teaches. Obviously the question, when people who are believers who fall away 
The issue isn't, were they genuine believers or not? There's no reason to doubt that. If they have a clear conversion experience, which led to a clear living of the Christian life to whatever extent, there is no need to doubt that they were genuinely born again just because they've fallen away or in serious sin now. That is an issue. Arguably, the issue is, can you lose your salvation? Because the other theological system in this regard says, oh yeah, genuinely born again believers can end up in this kind of mess, but if they do, they'll end up going to Lake of Fire. God will simply kick them out, he'll take their salvation away. Now that's something we've covered in depth before. Uh, if people want to, we can do that again. Because uh, I, I just think that it, it, it's really important that we are absolutely clear on these things. Because otherwise we're going to be in trouble. Um, you know, because, and of course the other side to the perseverance of the saints, on one level, or in one way, the danger is it can lull you into full sense of security. That, that's the first thing it can do. But the way it affects other people is Satan gets in because ultimately you can't get away from this problem. If the truth is that if serious sin or falling away means you're not a genuine believer, then the question is, how can you know you're a genuine believer and going to heaven? Because in order to know that, you've got to know that you're never going to fall away and never get into serious sin. Well, how do you know that? So therefore, there's no way that you can have assurance of salvation on that basis. Now, on the other side of it, the, the, you know, the, the non-reformed, the Arminian side, their answer is, well, you can't have, you know, you can't have you know, real assurance of faith anyway, because if you don't stay close to Jesus, you can end up losing your salvation. And, and, and this, these are the things where Satan gets in and uh, you know, can actually, you know, there's many a believer who's ended up shipwrecking their faith through fear and despair that they're not going to end up saved. You see what I mean? So it's vitally important that we understand that the perseverance of the saints as a doctrine is a serious error and as is also the teaching that you can lose your salvation. Because again, the point is, if you can lose your salvation, how do you know you're not going to, so how do you sleep at night? So, so these are tremendously important issues.